from the Sunday School. Thank you for being here. I said last week, as we covered the crucifixion, that that day was both the, the best and worst day in history. Though some might contend that actually what we're talking about today in Sunday School was the best day in history. If you look at the background notes in your student guide or your, your workbook, it actually says Jesus' resurrection was the greatest day in history. And we have a song, Very Beloved at Calvary, in which we say the greatest day in history also was the resurrection. I, I, I suppose it'd be pretty hard to decide which was better, the cross or the resurrection. But really, those two events are so linked that if one were to take place without the other, it would not be great. Without the cross, Jesus' resurrection is useless. But without the resurrection... The cross is hopeless, but both of these things took place. And that's what makes these three days in which these things took place the most wonderful moment in history. We're going to investigate the account of Jesus' resurrection today. And we're going to be using Matthew's gospel primarily. We'll mention the others. Again, I encourage you to read the parallel accounts. As you do, be conscious that each writer, as I've said before, is coming at the scene coming at the events from a different perspective, it's actually really interesting how the accounts vary because it, it shows that the resurrection happening and the report of the resurrection was a little bit more complex than we think. It appears at least, and we won't get into this during a lesson, but I'll just tell you now, it appears that though a group of women go to the tomb, one of the women, and maybe more, actually leave the tomb without believing Jesus rose from the dead and then goes back to the tomb. Mary Magdalene specifically is, is highlighted in John's gospel of not believing even when the angels tell her that Jesus has risen from the dead. But we're going to be looking at Matthew's gospel. Again, I encourage you to complement your understanding of what we talked about today with your own reading. But as we investigate the resurrection, again, this is a crucial event, a wonderful event. We want, to, we want to pay close attention to it. We want to know what happened. We want to know why it's important. And we want to know what it means for us today. And Lord willing, we'll answer those questions in our class, at least to some extent. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for the resurrection, but we thank you for the cross that, that makes the res resurrection meaningful. Lord, what an incredible work you've done, and I pray that you help me to be able to explain it, help the people to be able to appreciate it, be moved by it to greater sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. This is where we find the account of the resurrection. Recall where we are. On the day of Jesus' crucifixion, around 9 a.m., the Gentile trials began. Pilate, Herod, then Pilate, tried Christ, pronounced him innocent, and yet ultimately handed him over to be crucified. Jesus' crucifixion began around 12 noon. And for three hours, from 12 to 3 o'clock approximately, there was darkness over the whole earth. That was while Jesus was on the cross and was suffering the wrath of God in place of sinners. At the end of three hours, towards the end of three hours, the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus cried out, cried out with a loud voice, and then gave up his spirit. And at that moment, Matthew tells us, and we didn't mention this last week, but Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake and that many tombs opened and righteous persons came back from the dead and went into the city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, the veil of the temple, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple, the, the very place that God's presence was meant to dwell, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the onlookers saw how Jesus died and those other things that took place, the four soldiers who had crucified Jesus, including their centurion, confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, there are different supporters, different followers of Jesus who are observing the crucifixion and those things that happened from a distance, including, Matthew tells us right before the passage we're about to look at, including two women, two Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's James the Less, one of the apostles, not James the brother of John. But Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, they're going to be important 
and what Matthew is about to tell us. Now look at Matthew 27, verses 57 to 66. We have two sections to read. We're going to read and observe both sections, but we'll do them in parts. So let's start with this first section, Matthew 27, verses 57 to 66. Follow along with me. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go and make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. All right. Let's observe this first section. Note, first of all, the timing. This is still Friday. Still Good Friday. This is the day before the Sabbath. Friday is considered the day of preparation. Remember, this is a special Sabbath. It was also going to be Passover for many of the Jews. And that day would begin at sundown. Remember, many of the Jews saw the days beginning at sundown, not sunrise and not midnight. So Passover is about to take place at sundown, but it's still Friday. It's getting closer to sundown, though. It's evening, our text tells us. So getting close to the end of the day. When we hear about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, told he's a, a rich man. But verse 27 also tells us he's a disciple of Jesus. If we bring in information from the other Gospels, we learn that he was actually a secret disciple of Jesus because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And remember what the Sanhedrin is. That's the governing body of the Jews that condemned Jesus to death. It was a council of elders, religious leaders, rabbis, Pharisees. And they ruled Israel under Rome's jurisdiction. Rome also ruled Israel through Pilate. But he's a member of the Sanhedrin. But he had not consented with the people to put Jesus to death. Consented with the other members of the Sanhedrin. Actually, Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, this was a risky request. Why would it have been risky for him to do this? Yes, Steve. Yeah, and that's very good, Steve. Jesus was crucified as a criminal, as, as king of the Jews, and he would be associating with him by asking for the body, seeming to suggest that he supported him. And as a member of the Sanhedrin, that's going to make him look bad. That's going to bring him the ire of the other Sanhedrin members and perhaps the Jews at large. And that also puts him into a certain position with Rome that is risky. Rome crucified him. You're going to support this crucified criminal? That's true. Pilate said that Jesus was innocent, but he was a condemned criminal. And he died that horrifying and humiliating death. So there was a certain amount of risk in this, this request from Joseph. But he makes the request. Pilate hears it and grants it. So Joseph then prepares Jesus' body for burial. Text says he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. But he actually did more than this. The other Gospels say that Joseph and Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, they together prepared Jesus' body, and they covered it in spices, precious oils, and aloes, just making his body extremely fragrant. John's Gospel says they used a hundred pounds of these spices and perfumes. Now this was not for preserving or embalming the body. Jews didn't do that. That was something the Egyptians did. 
and this is not to prevent decay, but this was a sign of affection, devotion, and reverence for the one who had died by perfuming it in this way. This is how the Jews showed respect for the dead. And it would cover the stench of decomposition as it took place, or at least somewhat cover it. But it was a sign of love for the one who had died. And these men do it. When they place the body, back to what Matthew says, Joseph places the body in a tomb. It was actually close by the cross, a cave hewn out of rock. And the text says it was actually Joseph's own tomb and it had not been used before. It was new. He puts Jesus's body in the tomb, wrapped in the linen cloth, perfumed, and he closes the tomb with a large stone. I probably had some help. It's not very easy to move a large stone, but it was movable if you had enough manpower and the tomb was closed. Now note the text says that the two Marys noted the place where Jesus had been buried. Now they didn't know Joseph of Arimathea, and they didn't know even Nicodemus. These women were probably from Galilee, elsewhere, and so they didn't necessarily fully trust Joseph and what he did for Jesus. And we're going to see later on, they want to do something for Jesus themselves. But they note the place which he was buried. But then we have this request from the Pharisees towards Pilate. Pharisees request the assistance of a Roman guard to prevent the disciples deceiving the people by saying Jesus falsely rise from the dead. Pilate grants their request. When he says you have a guard, he's not saying you already have soldiers. He's giving them what they want. Here's a guard. Take a guard. They wouldn't have needed to ask him otherwise if they already had a guard. He says, take a guard, make it as secure as you can. And they do. They place these guards, these Roman guards around the tomb. And it says, the text says they also set a seal on the stone. Now, what does that mean? Well, this word for seal or set a seal has two possible meanings, depending on the context. It can mean to place a seal on something. That is like an insignia, a sign of authority. And by placing this symbol on something, it would basically mean don't mess with this or face the consequences. And we see this exact use of this kind of sealing in the book of Daniel. Very similar situation to what we see here. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 17, when Daniel is placed into the lion's den, listen to what the text says. Daniel 6, 17. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. So this could be the sense of seal or set a seal in our passage in Matthew. Granted, Daniel's passage is in Aramaic, so it's not exactly the same word, but same concept. There's another meaning, though, of seal that could be possible here, and that's the idea of fastening something so that it cannot move, to fully shut up, to uh, make totally secure so that it won't move or it won't open. We see the Greek verb that is present in our passage used in this way in another place, in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 to 3, speaking of Satan being put into the abyss, listen to what it says. Revelation 20, verses 2 to 3. And he, that's an angel, laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So in the second passage, it seems more like the idea of fastening something shut. If we examine the major, major translations, of our passage here in Matthew, they seem to be divided, the major English translations, divided on the sense of this seal. New American Standard, the NIV, they both say set a seal or setting a seal. So that's more the idea of a symbol or an insignia. Where the ESV and the King James Version, they have the idea of, or they, they translate it as sealing the stone. And that's more the idea of fastening tight, keeping shut. For what it's worth, the two premier lexical resources that I use as a seminary student, the Greek-English lexicon in the New Testament, other Christian literature, affectionately known as BDAG, for the abbreviations of the authors, 
And the New International Dictionary of the New Testament Theology and Exegesis, which has a huge acronym, which I won't even try to say, they both lean towards the idea of fastening shut. And that does fit in the context of making the grave secure, which is what they intended to do. The Jews want to make this grave as secure as they can. So I lean more to the fasten idea. Both are possible. And in fact, both may have happened. They may have actually prevented the stone from moving and put the Roman seal saying, don't mess with this, don't open this, or you will face the consequences. And it could have been both. Certainly, by the time we come to the end of chapter 7, we see that the tomb is very secure. The tomb has a large, heavy stone at the entrance. It has been sealed one way or the other by the Romans. It has a Roman guard around the tomb. These are well-trained soldiers, well-armed, and soldiers that know they will pay with their lives if they fail to guard properly what they've been assigned to guard. This is a very secure tomb. There's no way that a couple of bumbling disciples could come in and get Jesus out of the tomb. It has been made very secure. So we make these observations. Let's step back for a second and just consider two interpretation questions. Number one, what does Joseph demonstrate in asking for and preparing Jesus's body for burial? We noted it was a risky thing to do, and yet he does it. So what does that demonstrate about Joseph? Yeah, Roy. That's right. Yeah, this shows his devotion to Jesus. It shows his love for Jesus. And we could even say it shows his faith in Jesus. He is a true disciple of the Lord. Now, what he exactly expected to come from Jesus' burial, we don't know. Jesus did say he would rise again, but this man is a true disciple. And he's willing to go out on a limb, so to speak, for Jesus. He's showing faith. You know, it's interesting that this is the only time that Joseph of Arimathea appears in the scriptures. And just for doing this one thing. And every gospel records it. Every gospel records what he did. Kind of reminds me of what Jesus said about uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, when she anointed Jesus for burial. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has done will also be told. And the same thing seems to apply for Joseph. This, this act of devotion was remembered, is remembered in every gospel. Yeah, Roy, you're going to say something else? Hmm. 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 Yeah, it's, that's a good point. Yeah, thanks, Roy. Joseph does stand in contrast to the disciples. And it won't just be Joseph, but we'll see the people who first learned of the resurrection are not Jesus' disciples. It's the women. They're the ones who are going to the tomb, and they're the ones who are going to report what they see at the tomb. Where are the disciples? As you say, Roy, they, many of them are just cowering in fear. It's true, John, the apostle, seems to have been at the cross, but even he doesn't appear to be at the tomb. There's one other thing, though, related to Joseph's actions that's important for us to think about. What is the significance of Jesus being placed in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb? It says it was his own. Why is that significant? It fulfills prophecy. Matthew doesn't bring it up, but this is exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, verse 9. It says, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You see, if Joseph had not stepped forward and done this, and no one else did, then Jesus would have been given a criminal's burial. He was assigned a grave with wicked men. He would have gotten a very dishonorable burial. 
the most basic burial, if anything at all. But this was prevented due to Joseph, and he was put in, and he was put in Joseph's tomb, a rich man's tomb. He was with a rich man in his death. This is a very specific prophecy, and it was brought to pass. Of course, we've been seeing this throughout Jesus's life, and certainly at the cross, all these fulfillments of prophecy pointing to Jesus truly being the Messiah and of perfectly accomplishing God's work. Now let's look at the next section. We've seen Jesus' preparation for burial. Let's see what happens on the first day of the week. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And the appearance and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Just wonderful, wonderful passage. Let's observe what we see here. Note the timing now. This is not Friday, not Saturday, not the Sabbath, but the first day of the week. This is after the Sabbath has finished. This is dawn towards the first day of the week, so Sunday in our terms, around 6 a.m. or so. Notice who goes to the tomb. It's the two Marys that we met earlier. In fact, it actually was more women than this. If we put all the Gospels together, it seems to be at least four women. But Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, they were there. And notice what they see. And they see that there had been an earthquake. Now, the it's a little ambiguous as to whether the earthquake occurred when they arrived or when it had occurred or if it had occurred before they arrived. Notice the translation the NASB interpreters are given is, had been an earthquake. And that does seem to fit more with the details of the other Gospels. This appears to have taken place before they arrived, and they simply saw the angel once they did. This angel who came down uh, had a stunning appearance. It says he his appearance was like lightning. Now think of a lightning bolt, lightning flash, that brilliance, that uh, just overpowering light. And his clothes were as white as snow. And he, when he descends, there's an earthquake, and he rolls away the stone, and he just sits on it. Now, it could be that the stone was laid flat so that it was no longer standing up, and he just sits on the stone. And I feel like that's a funny detail, that he just sits on the stone. It's like the angel's just chilling there after, this, after the grave has been opened. But when the guards see it, see the, what, see the angel's appearance, see the earthquake, see what the angel does, says that they are overcome with fear and they became like dead men. What does it mean to become like a dead man? Yeah, they're unable to move, unable to speak, unable to do anything. In fact, they may be unconscious. They may have just been so overwhelmed with fright that they just fainted. So, so much for elite Roman guard. Now, this reaction of just becoming like a dead man and seeing such a, such a sight, such a glorious sight, this is similar to what John himself experienced, the Apostle John experiences in the book of Revelation when he sees the vision of glorified Jesus. He says he too fell, fell at Jesus' feet and became like a dead man. And then Jesus raises him up. So that's what happens to the soldiers. They fall, they become like dead men perhaps unconscious. Notice what the women hear from the angel. Guards didn't hear anything, but the, the women do 
And the angel says to them, do not be afraid. Ah, what a wonderful phrase. And we hear it so often from the angels and even from Christ in the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Even though you see this glorious creature, do you see this overwhelming light and power? Don't be afraid. And he tells them, I know you're looking for Jesus, but he's not here. He's risen. You know, it's interesting. John MacArthur points out in his uh, treatment of the passage that these women, when they came to the tomb, they were not expecting a resurrection. They just came to honor Jesus' body by putting more spices and perfumes. They weren't expecting to see a resurrection. They expected to see Jesus, his body. The angel says, he's not here. He's risen just as he told you, just as he said. And he invites them to come into the tomb and see for themselves. Look, look at the place where he lay. And then the angel commands them, go and tell the disciples this news and tell them that Jesus is going to Galilee to see them there. Now, Jesus had said that himself before he died. He says, I'm going to go to Galilee and see you. That's going to be the regrouping place for all of Jesus' disciples, though he would appear to many of them before then. Now, these women, according to Matthew, they obey. They go out with fear, but they also go out with great joy. And it says they actually run into Jesus. And it says he greets them. It's actually kind of funny, but <laughs> if you look at the, uh, the original language, it literally says they ran into Jesus, and Jesus said, greetings. <laughs> he actually just kind of like says hi. And they take hold of him. And they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. And Jesus ac accepts that worship. And Jesus speaks to them too. And he says basically the same thing the angel did. He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. Now, it's interesting now. Notice that the, one of the phrases Jesus, use, Jesus uses in uh, verse 10, he says, go to my brethren. Now, we're kind of used to the idea of brethren, but Jesus almost never uses this phrase in the scriptures to describe his disciples. And only three times he does. One time where he's talking about um, the last judgment, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you have done to me. But he never addresses the disciples directly as my brethren. So that's kind of like a theoretical passage until his resurrection. Here, Matthew records it. And John does the same thing. John chapter 20, when Jesus speaks with Mary Magdalene, he says, go and tell my brethren. He never used that phrase before. But what does it imply? What does the use of my brethren imply? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, there's an even closer identification than existed earlier in Jesus's ministry. And I do think, yes, it has something to do with what Jesus has accomplished. Reconciliation to the Father has been completed. Uh, he, can, he has an even closer connection with them than he did before. There's an implication of affection in this term. They are my brethren, close fellowship, and deep identification. Jesus is their brother, and they are his brothers. And he can say that without reservation, based on really what he's done. And that's where our, our text ends. So let's now consider some interpretation questions. We've got a number of them here. First, Jesus declared in earlier in Matthew, Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40, something specific about what was going to happen in the future. He said, this is Matthew 12, verses 39 to 40. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. However, according to the timing details we observed, does Jesus really fulfill what he prophesied? Three days and three nights? Was Jesus indeed in the grave for 72 hours? Well, if we just pay attention to what we observed, we know that that can't work. So was Jesus wrong? Now some, in considering these words from Jesus and the timing details we see in the Gospels, 
they come up with a pretty radical solution. They say Jesus actually wasn't crucified on Friday. He was crucified earlier. He was crucified on Thursday or even Wednesday. That's how you can get these three days and three nights. But there's a better answer to this question. How could Jesus fulfill what he prophesied and still go in the grave on Friday and come out of it on Sunday? The answer is that Jesus' phrase was emphatic, but idiomatic, not literal. Now, what's an idiom? Remember, an idiom is just a, a certain phrase that a people or a culture uses that everyone knows the meaning of, even though it's not literally true. For example, in English, in American English, we often say, how are you, when we don't actually mean, how are you? Like, if you go to the grocery store and you speak with the cashier, they might say, hi, how are you? And you might just say, hi, back. And they're not going to say, hey, why don't you tell me how you are? No, how are you is basically another way to say hi, at least in American English. If you try to use this idiom, however, in a different country or a different culture, you're going to find you don't get the same reaction. For example, if you ask in German how someone is, how are you, they'll probably be offended because they don't know you. And they say, oh, why do you want to know how I am? They're going to be a little weirded out by you. That's just the, something that we have in American English. It's the same thing when it comes to this phrase, three days and three nights. Jesus is not saying that he would be in the grave 72 hours. He's simply declaring that he would be in the grave for a portion of three different days, for sure. Now, we even have an, a parallel expression in English to this kind of thing. Someone might say, I worked day and night for three days in a row. I worked day and night. Now, when you say that, you don't literally mean that you worked for 72 hours straight. What you mean is that I worked a lot for three different days. We even see, or, or so actually, I'll let me say this. It's the same idea with what Jesus said. We even see the same kind of usage elsewhere in the Bible. If you go to the book of Esther, you don't have to turn there, but you can. Esther chapter 4, verses 15 to the first verse of chapter 5. We see Esther using a similar phrase that turns out not to be literally three days and three nights. Esther 4, verses 15 and following says, this is right, right before Esther is going to go before King Ahasuerus. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Okay, there's that phrase, very similar to what Jesus said. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. And now the first verse of uh, chapter five, now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And, and basically she goes in before the king. So even though she gave the instruction and the text says Mordecai followed her instruction, it's clear that she did not literally fulfill what she asked. Fasting began on the first day before it started. So it was not a full day. It was a partial day. It continued through a full second day, and it concluded on the third day before the third day had ended. It wasn't even a full third day. It was a portion of three different days. It was not a full 72 hours. So the Jews understood that this phrase, three days and three nights, didn't literally mean 72 hours. It just meant a portion of three days. And this is even more explicit from a Jewish rabbi from the first century. Here's a little quote from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, talking about the understanding of the Jews at that time. Listen to what this commentator says. On three days and three nights, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, who lived around AD 100, said, quote, a day and a night make an onah, that is a 24-hour period. And a portion of an onah is reckoned as a complete onah. So this is what the rabbi said. We understand that the day and the night make up one unit, and if you use any portion of that unit, it's considered as if you using the whole unit, an onah. That comes from the Talmud, a certain section. And the commentator comments, this shows how these terms were used in Jesus' time. And there's no reason for thinking that this had not been the understanding of the phrase, a day and a night, all along. The difficulty some find in reconciling the expression three days and three nights with the time Jesus' body was in the grave comes from undue concern with clock time. 
And that's where his quote ends. So maybe that was a little bit of an overkill to you, but we can safely say Jesus was not fudging. We're not just coming up with a, a convenient explanation here. No, that was the understanding. When he said three days and three nights, he was not declaring 72 hours. It would be a portion of three different days. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He was in the grave for part of the day on Friday. It wasn't very much of the day. It was right before sundown, but he was in the grave. He was in the grave fully on Saturday, the Sabbath, and he was in the grave partly on Sunday. He was gone at dawn or slightly before dawn around 6 a.m. Craig, was that a question? Okay. So did everybody follow that? Yes, Steve. Yeah, that's a great observation, Steve. Yeah, even in Matthew's text, we see these two things made equivalent. Just to repeat what you said briefly, the Pharisees say, after three days, he would rise again, make it secure until the third day. So you're right, yeah. We can make a, people of skeptics, those who want to find a, different problems with the scriptures, they have made a lot of this phrase, but actually the answer is pretty pretty simple. And it's even there in the text. So that's a great observation, Steve. So yes, Jesus does really fulfill what he prophesied about being in the grave three days, and he was. But then he rose again. Now, we'll move on to another question here. Why did the angel roll away the stone? On first glance, oh, go ahead, Dwayne. Exactly. At first glance, you might say, oh, he rolled away the stone, the stone so Jesus could get out. But we see nothing about Jesus leaving the tomb here. He rolled away the stone so that people could go in and so that they could see that the grave was empty. We see later on in the Gospels that Jesus is able to travel around through things without opening doors. He can go through locked doors. He has a glorified body. He's able to move in a special way. He didn't need the tomb door opened. But if people are going to verify that he wasn't there, the stone would need to be rolled away. And that's what the angel did. This is a pretty simple question. Next, how well did the Jewish and Roman preparations prevent the resurrection of Jesus? Not very well. <laughs> I'd say they failed uh, totally. They couldn't prevent the resurrection. They couldn't prevent anything. And what does this demonstrate? Reinforce for us, man has no power. But God is full of power, and is totally sovereign. Number four, what is the implication of Jesus accepting the worship of the two women? Has to be because he's God. We've seen this before in the Gospels. If he accepts this kind of worship, he must be God. The apostle John was rebuked for doing this to another being who was not God. Same Greek verb. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22, verses 8 to 9, John falls at the feet of an angel to do this worship, this special verb in Greek. And the angel says, here's what he says in Revelation 22, Do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Now, those who don't believe in the deity of Christ, they'll try and translate this verb merely as reverence. But if you do that there... <clears throat> then you have a problem with John's words in Revelation 22, because the angel says, don't do that to anybody except God. But Jesus accepts the worship because he is God. But there's something else there with that worship that's important for us to think through. What is the significance of the women grasping Jesus' feet? On the one hand, it's, a, it's part of the worship. It's a sign of reverence and affection. But there's something else. Well, there's that. They didn't want him to leave. In, in John's account, when Mary Magdalene apparently is grasping on Jesus, he says, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. 
And you could understand being in their shoes. All that's happened, your beloved rabbi and messiah was betrayed and killed, crucified, put in his grave, and now he's alive and he's back. You don't want him to go. You don't you don't want to um you don't want to lose him again. And so they're clinging to him. But the fact that they can cling to him, and this is perhaps part of the reason that they cling to him, shows that he is real. He's really alive. He has a real body. He's not a mere apparition. He's not a mirage. He's not a spirit. He's real. His body's real. It's real enough that you can grab hold of it. That's what they do. And perhaps that's also part of the reason they don't want to let go. I want to make sure that you're real. I can't believe it. I can't believe that you're alive. And they, they don't let go. It, it reminds me of what Jesus says, we'll say in just a, a few verses after this passage, where he appears before his disciples in Jerusalem and he says, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's really alive. He's really there. He really has a resurrected body. Now, what is so unique about this resurrection miracle of Jesus as compared to other miracles in the Bible? Other people were raised from the dead. But what's special about this resurrection? Well, known before, raised himself. Known before was raised without some other human agent acting as a razor. Hold on just a second. Apologies. We have different prophets. We have Jesus raising people from the dead. They were empowered by God to do this. But no one raised himself. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus raises himself while being dead. No human being can do that. No human being has that kind of power. This also points us to Jesus being God. Now, actually, Jesus' resurrection was a Trinitarian act. Every member of the God, each person of the Godhead was involved. Many scriptures testify that it's the Father who raised Jesus. For instance, Galatians 1.1. Galatians 1.1 says, and Paul giving an introduction here, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father did. But we can also say, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Because consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans 8, 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And that's a very significant verse. Not only because it verifies the spirit raised Jesus, but he, Paul is even making a theological point based on that. He says, if the spirit raised Jesus and you have the spirit, then you can be confident that you will be raised too through the power of the spirit. So the father raised Jesus, the spirit raised Jesus, and yet we can also say the son raised himself. Because that's what Jesus claimed in John chapter 10. We saw this ourselves, I think, last week, these same verses. But let me remind you of them. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So Jesus says, the one who has authority to take up his life again is me. I can do that. I lay it down. I take it up. No one can make me do otherwise. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all raised Jesus from the dead. It's often noted, but worth repeating even now, this is one of the things that makes Christianity unique. Jesus is the only religious leader, religious founder, who rose from the dead and is still alive today. To my knowledge, no other religion makes that spectacular claim. 
Maybe because it's pretty easy to verify for those other religions, their founders being in the grave. Even Muhammad, this wasn't true of him, even though he's revered so much by the followers of Islam. You know, people say, Answers in Genesis notes this too, that they like to say that all religions are the same. They're just various versions of the same, same idea. But no, actually, this is one of the things that makes Christianity stand out. Our Lord is Allah. He died, but he rose from the dead. To, two other questions here. How does Jesus' resurrection fulfill prophecy? We hear in the New Testament about Jesus being raised according to the scriptures. Are there prophecies related to Jesus' resurrection? Certainly in his own lifetime, he made many prophecies. He told his disciples again and again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise from the grave three days later. So it does fulfill what Jesus said. But it also fulfills scriptures in the Old Testament. Consider, in Acts chapter 2, Peter makes a, a huge point in his sermon to the people there about something the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 10, David speaking, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is, the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Peter makes the point next too. Look, David died and he's buried. His body did decay. But, or so these words couldn't have applied to him. They applied to someone he prophesied about. They applied to one who did not decay. Jesus, the Messiah, who was raised incorruptible. Psalm 22 also makes an allusion to Jesus' resurrection. Now, Psalm 22, that's the one that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So many different prophecies about Jesus on the cross. But as you get towards the end of the psalm, the psalmist says, you've heard my cry. I know that you have delivered me. How can that be true if the person he's talking about died? Well, that's because he knew that he was going to be given life again. He knew that the Lord heard his prayer. Or Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.10 has a similar implication. You know, Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant. But Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Wait a second. If he's going to be a guilt offering, if he's going to die, how is it that he can see his offspring and prolong his days? Or have the good pleasure of Yahweh prosper in his hand? It has to be because he will rise from the dead. That's how he will prolong his days. The resurrection is even implicit there. It's necessary from that scripture. And even Zechariah 12.10. I mentioned this verse to you last week also, but speaking eschatologically about Israel and their future repentance one day, God says in Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over our firstborn. How will Israel look on the one whom they pierced if he's still in the grave? It's because he rises from the dead. For this passage to be fulfilled, the Messiah must rise from the dead. So indeed, the Old Testament does declare the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Messiah had to die, but he also had to rise again from the grave. And Jesus fulfills it perfectly, showing again he is Messiah. He is God. Now the biggest question. What's the significance of the resurrection? What's the significance of the resurrection, particularly for believers? And this is a huge question. Very critical question. I can only broach an answer to it in our class today. Student Guide, actually, if you read the introduction to this lesson today, gives a pretty good breakdown and answer to this question. But I'm going to give my own version of it. I want to point out three huge implications of Jesus' resurrection. Three huge implications. Number one, the resurrection verifies that Jesus is Son of God and Messiah. This is what we've just been saying, right? You look at how he fulfills prophecy. You look at the power he displayed, only this can only be God. This can only be the Messiah. And this is something Paul says explicitly in Romans 1, verses 3 to 4. Romans 1, verses 3 to 4. 
Paul says, concerning his, his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what did the resurrection do? It declared Jesus unequivocally to be the son of God because he demonstrated divine power. So first of all, the resurrection verifies Jesus is son of God and Messiah. But secondly, the resurrection verifies that Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was accepted by the Father and that believing sinners are fully justified and righteous before God. That's kind of long, so I'll say it again. Second thing the resurrection does is that it verifies that Jesus' sacrifice for sinners was accepted by the Father and those sinners stand fully righteous and justified before God. This is what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 verses 23 to 25. Romans 4, 23 to 25. Paul writes, speaking just about Abraham and righteousness by faith. Here's what Paul says. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and who was raised because of our justification. See what he did there? Jesus died because of our sins, because of our transgressions, but he was raised because of our justification, because of our being made righteous before God. It was vindication. It was full acceptance. The Lord's wrath, the justice of God, was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. The resurrection proves that. If Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, if he didn't really finish the work of redemption on the cross, then Jesus could not have been raised. He would have had to keep on suffering, or he would have merely been rejected as an inappropriate sacrifice by the Father. But the fact that he was raised shows that he perfectly pleased the Father and completed the work of redemption. So that's point number two. There's a third reason, third huge implication of the resurrection, and I alluded to it before. The resurrection also verifies that there will be a coming resurrection of all people, and that believers will be raised to eternal life just as their Messiah was. So just covering those all again. Number one, it verifies who Jesus is. Number two, it verifies that his work was accepted. Number three, it verifies that there will be a resurrection of all people and a resurrection unto eternal life for those that believe in Jesus. Peter says in his letter, and you've probably seen these verses recently based on the pastor's preaching, 1 Peter, verses 3 to 5, the apostle Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, we have a hope through Jesus' resurrection. We will obtain an eternal inheritance. We also will be raised. Paul calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's like he's the initial harvest. He's a preview of what is to come. As Jesus was raised from the dead in power and glory, so will his people be. Now, these things I say, these implications, if you know Jesus today, this morning, then they apply to you. Jesus is your God and Messiah. You have recognized his authority over you. He died to pay for your sins and make you fully righteous. And his sacrifice was accepted. You are positionally righteous before God, legally, totally justified. There is therefore now no condemnation hanging over you, as Romans 8 says. And as Jesus rose from the grave, so will you. Like Jesus said in his own ministry, he's like a life-bearing grain that is put into the ground, but he has sprouted up to become a harvest of life and righteousness. He goes into the ground as a bare seed. He comes out with a harvest, and you are that harvest. If you know Jesus you have eternal life with him. And isn't this what we humans have been waiting for since the Garden of Eden? We've been looking for deliverance from the serpent, 
the one who deceived us, brought us into the bondage of sin. We've been looking for deliverance from death, something we could not escape. We've been looking for reconciliation with our Creator. And God provided it all through Jesus, through the crucifixion, through the resurrection. As Jesus said, He is the resurrection and the life. And everyone who lives and believes in Him will never die. Now, isn't it amazing that these things actually happened? And they did actually happen. They were recorded by eyewitnesses who had no reason to lie. They were foretold by Jesus himself, by the Old Testament scriptures. They are, these things, the resurrection, is one of the most well-documented events in history. There are all sorts of books about that. You know, evidence that demands a verdict and so forth, the case for Christ. These things, they, they show that there's abundant evidence that this resurrection actually taking place. Resurrection of Jesus. And these things echo what our hearts know intuitively. We know that God created the world. It's, it's obvious with even a bare glance at the world we live in. We know that we owe this God worship and obedience, but we have not given God what he deserves. We failed to meet his, his perfect standard. We don't even meet our own standards. And we have loved idols and not God. Therefore, we know we are condemned before God and we need a rescuer, a supernatural rescuer to deliver us from death and from God's wrath. But God provided this Savior in Jesus as an undeserved gift. This is the truth. This is the good news, what we call the gospel. And if you don't know Jesus, if you will let go of your old way of thinking and living and believing and instead believe these things, you will rise again after you die and be with your Savior forever. But unfortunately, not everyone has accepted the good news. Some have ignored it, rejected it, or explained it away, which is exactly what we see next in the Gospel of Matthew. We don't have time to read the text, but you just glance at verses 11 to 15. You see the first resurrection conspiracy theory was born. The Pharisees disseminate the story that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body away while the guards slept. Totally implausible. But it's the story they circulated because they would not recognize, they did not want to recognize that Jesus is God and then he rose from the dead. So let's think about application a little bit more as we close. Oh, I should say, I'll talk more about resurrection skepticism in two lessons from now. Next week, though, we're going to talk about something different. But application now. Jesus asked Martha, when he was speaking about himself as the resurrection of the dead, do you believe this? So I need to ask yourself the same thing. Do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus and his resurrection? It's not popular in our scientific world today. Of course, the science that we exercise or that is often exercised is extremely biased and not even scientific. But resurrection is foolishness to the world. It's nonetheless true and necessary for eternal life. By faith, we embrace it. Jesus did, the Son of God did come. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. By faith, we embrace it. Do you? Now, some today, especially those considered scholars, have sought to promote and ascribe to a Christianity in which Christ did not literally rise from the dead. A Christianity without the resurrection. Why is this actually impossible? An unacceptable perversion. It's because, first of all, it actually happened. Second of all, it's as we discussed. Without the resurrection, Jesus' identity is compromised. Our justification is compromised. And the hope of resurrection, of our own resurrection, is gone. And you know this from 1 Corinthians 15. Without the resurrection, the Christian life is a pitiable waste. If Christ wasn't raised, then neither will we be. But the fact is, the resurrection did take place. All suffering and sacrifice that we experience in this life is worth it because there will be a resurrection. And those that believed in Jesus, they'll be with him. They will rise into eternal life. So the resurrection has always been a core part of the gospel message. We cannot leave it out. We cannot Lay it aside. It's essential. 
offensive, but essential. So do you believe this? Praise the Lord. These things are true. Praise the Lord for Jesus' resurrection. That's all the time we have for today. If there are some questions or comments you have based on the lesson, please email me. Next week, we actually come to the end of the Gospels. We look at Jesus' great commission right before he ascends. Let's pray as we close. Our Lord and God, you have risen from the dead. You have conquered death. And you have made it known to the world. This is good news. It is the hope of resurrection for all who believe in you. We thank you, God, that we have been brought into that hope. We believe in you. I pray, God, any who are just going through the motions, who have not truly embraced you and your resurrection, that they would today, because there's no hope apart from you and apart from your resurrection. You are God. You conquered death. You totally paid for sin so that those that believe you have no condemnation. We thank you for that great work. We pray, God, that we will walk worthy of it. And the people of Calvary be encouraged to do so themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. See you next week.